0: Welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. I'm Richard Sears here today with Dr. Helena Hansen. Dr. Hansen is professor and chair of the research theme in translational social science and health equity, as well as associate director for the Center for Social Medicine at UCLA. She's a psychiatrist and anthropologist and has researched how race, class, gender, and the like affect psychiatric diagnosis. Welcome, Dr. Hansen, and thank you for making time to talk with us today.
1: Thank you. Great to be
0: here. Um, So we're just going to jump right in here. Um, I was wondering first if you could just tell us a bit about what brought you to your work. How did you end up interested in psychiatry and and anthropology? And specifically, how did you end up kind of looking at this question of intersectionality and psychiatric diagnosis?
1: Wow. Okay, I'll try to give you the short version. Uh, And since I'm speaking to a contributor to Mad in America, I'll start off by saying that it's probably because I was mad as in angry. Um, (laughs) In my childhood was profoundly shaped by the mental health, quote unquote, system in California. And the fact that, you know, I I grew up in the 70s in Oakland, and Berkeley, California. just in the moment of deinstitutionalization in California. So a couple of things were happening. That is that the mental hospitals were being closed um, with a very, you know good kind of verbalized motive of getting people out into community and not confined right, in, right. Um, in mental hospitals. But there was nothing on the other end, right? No community services, no supports. And so you know, I remember basically on my way to school and back, a lot of people sleeping on the streets, you know, and just having kind of find my way in through a maze of people who clearly had just been totally abandoned. Um, But then, you know, the other part of that story is mass incarceration was starting, you know, and a lot of people who otherwise might have been in the mental health care system were in the carceral system and it got personal in that, at least two of my uncles and probably three of my uncles got caught up in its sweep. Actually, to be precise, three of my uncles got caught up in its sweep. I grew up largely in the home of my grandparents. My mother was a single mother raising me in Oakland and my grandparents had a cycle of my uncles in and out as they lost their own independent housing and had to move home. And, um, you know, they struggled with, with drugs. Um, they struggled with what we might have called a psychiatric crisis, you know, if I was in a psychiatric department, but, you know, they they struggled in many different ways. And they were often brought home by the police. And they went in and out of jail. Uh, one of them ended up dying in a mental hospital. You know, he got one of the few remaining beds when it comes to mental hospitalization in California. But, Probably was um, overmedicated with um, antipsychotics that ended up stopping his heart. And um, two of my uncles, you know, were arrested on drug charges, probably were using drugs because of the mental distress that they were going through. Uh, It was a really hard time to be a black man in Oakland and Berkeley. And they'd both been um, involved in civil rights movement and had experienced a lot of repression and oppression. Um, and so I think part of their coping with that was drug use and, and also that, you know, they, I'm sure they had depression. They had things that, you know, we could label with psychiatric diagnoses, basically distress. And, you know, they ended up in the jail and prison system with those struggles because um, this was, you know, when the war on drugs had been launched and um, a lot of police surveillance, a lot of um, arrests. So this is what I grew up with. I grew up in a home where, you know, my grandparents, my mother, and I were always in fear that we'd come home to a police car. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot lot of emotional distress. When I got into medical school, it was on the heels of my own participation in AIDS activism. So I came of age, graduated college in the early 90s, just as AIDS activism was really peaking. And I think the things that inspired me about AIDS activism was the grassroots nature of it, the very creative way that people directly affected by HIV were in the front lines and had gotten a lot of successes making changes in public policy and medical practice and about, you know, what research got funded, what kinds of clinical care got funded So I was really inspired by that. And I think it was because I'd seen the other end of that. I'd seen how horrible uh, it can be to have no voice in the mental health care system, no voice in drug policy. Um, So I was very inspired by AIDS activism, decided to try to make change from within medicine, you know, because I had majored in biology and it just kind of seemed like a natural step that I, I could get into medicine. I could study medicine, but I wanted to do it with another kind of political consciousness that was deliberate from the beginning. And that's why I combined it with anthropology. I found that anthropology was a kind of countercultural way of looking at medical practice questions, a lot of the assumptions that psychiatrists and others brought to their work. So that's how I ended up pursuing that and trying to study race, pharma industries from a
0: critical perspective. Wow. So like a really personal journey kind of brought you to this for sure. Want to talk a little bit about how how intersectionality, how race, class, gender, those kinds of things can, can affect psychiatric diagnosis. How does that show up?
1: Uh, let's see. I'll try to answer it from two different angles. One angle is, uh, I think, a little bit more intuitive. So I was a psychiatry resident at NYU uh, starting in the mid-2000s. I think I started in 2005. And one of the things about NYU New York university's psychiatric training is that we trained in a few different hospitals. One of the hospitals we trained in was Bellevue hospital, which was New York city's is New York city's largest public hospital. And it takes people from all over the city and probably all over the world. Um, in that it's kind of, it has been historically known for its psychiatric care. And so we, you know, But the people that we get are poor, you know, Medicaid, uninsured. So we would get people from the homeless shelters. We would get people from low-income South Bronx, Harlem. We get people flying in from countries that they're migrating from, looking for mental health care. So we got people from all over. And then just three blocks up the street, we also had to train in New York, University Langone Hospital, which is a very high-end hospital. It accepts private insurance on the psychiatric unit. A lot of the stu- the patients that we saw were sons and daughters of psychiatrists, doctors, lawyers, celebrities, you know, that was the kind of, kind of clientele. And so what really struck me and a lot of my classmates in, in res- psychiatry training was the contrast between how we saw people treated at the exclusive New York University Hospital versus how we saw people treated at Bellevue. And we saw people who would come in with very similar symptoms, but get radically different diagnoses. And the reason for the, for that radical difference was really the life circumstance and the goals of care, quote unquote. So for example, somebody comes into Bellevue with mood symptoms, with hallucinations, let's say. They're coming from the homeless shelter, or you know, they're they're unemployed and insured. We would really steer them towards a schizophrenia diagnosis, and uh, at Bellevue, because it's so understaffed, a lot of times what we'd use to treat that schizophrenia that was diagnosed would be highly sedating antipsychotics like Zyprexa, and the purpose was to keep people quiet, you know, because we're dealing with an overcrowded ward and understaffed ward. Then, and of course, Zyprexa comes, those sorts of, there's a whole laundry list of sedating antipsychotics. Um, One of the common side effects is diabetes, weight gain, you know, uh, associated heart disease, you know, comes with some serious um, side effects. But we used it because it was so much easier for people to get social security if they had a schizophrenia diagnosis. Because one of the things we were trying to do was get them, it was well-intentioned, okay? In many cases, it was well. Part of it, of course, was race and classism. Because many of us were worried for our safety, okay? And confronted with a ward full of, say, black men. The majority, I, did, I I don't feel this way. I grew up with black male uncles and, you know, I don't have the same, I think, reaction to black men. But some of my, my classmates, grew up in neighborhoods where they did not encounter Black men as friends or as colleagues, and they saw them on TV as very violent individuals. And so this was, of course, part of the logic. We want to keep these large Black men quiet. But some of it was ill attention. We want social security benefits because otherwise, they don't have anything to survive on once we discharge them, right? And maybe they can qualify for what tiny little amount of supportive housing there might be out there in New York, which there's almost none. There are huge waiting lists for that. Contrast that with up at NYU Langone Hospital, where we are confronted with the son or daughter of a fellow psychiatrist who might've been in graduate school, you know, and we're trying to get them back on track to have a professional career. You don't want to give somebody like that a a schizophrenia diagnosis. That's not going to help them finish grad school or get a job. Bipolar disorder might be more appropriate. That's something that's thought of as somehow less severe, less threatening to a professional career, the medications we used were designed to keep them alert. Were designed to enable them to finish their studies or you know succeed as a professional. This was um, the reasoning, and so it it was a race race and class reasoning that it's not just out of the blue. It's not like randomly doctors think, oh, I hate black people, I love white people. No, it's that it's a part of an entire system in this country of race and class hierarchy. You know, and medical care is just one little piece of that. Medical care is designed to keep people where they are in the hierarchy. So that's one version of the story and then that that I guess that system that comment about race and class hierarchies in the US leads me to a second way of looking at it because you're talking about intersectionality. So as an anthropologist, more recently I've been I mean over the past decade, more recently I've been studying pharma industries and how they think. And I've been studying what I've come to call racial capitalism. And what I've discovered through many interviews with people in different parts of the pharmaceutical industry people who are doing the drug development, they're in a lab, people who are doing the marketing strategy for the company, people who are detailing prescribers, you know, visiting doctors and Uh, basically advertising their products through promotional dinners and gifts and things like that. People who are prescribing and people who are consuming. What I've discovered is that there's a whole race and class logic to how the whole pharmaceutical industry is set up. And it's very, very entrenched in psychotropic medications like antipsychotics, antidepressants, because these are considered quote-unquote lifestyle drugs. There's no explicit biomarker. You can't do a test on somebody, a blood test to decide if they should get an antidepressant or an antipsychotic. So it's, an, it's kind of an expandable category who you can designate as somebody who should get these medications, which means that it has been a goldmine for pharmaceutical industries, right, um, especially since the era of Prozac in the 80s. Pharma industries have really focused a lot on psychotropic drugs as a category because they've been extremely lucrative. The more they've been able to define emotional distress as um, a biologically treatable brain disorder, the more money they've made. But race and class logics are integral to that. So for example, we have a system in our country of race and class apartheid and who has access to what kinds of medical care. You know, it's very clear. Um, So we have a a public and uninsured track, and then we have a privately insured track. And the pharma industries have been extremely deliberate about which drugs they are developing and marketing for which market. It's very clear that there are at least two and probably more markets that divide along these lines. Um, And psychotropic drugs are, you know, right in the center of that so i already mentioned uh the sedating highly sedating antipsychotics that were used at bellevue hospital when i was training well it's absolute the farm industry is very privy they're very savvy about this stuff and they do in ways implicit and kind of secretive as well as explicit they market drugs according to the race and class strata uh segment of the market. Um, And so you're going to see a lot more detailing around those heavily sedating antipsychotics in hospitals like Bellevue. You're going to see drugs like Abilify that are considered to be weight neutral and not having all those side effects. Um, Those being marketed to a white clientele in private hospitals. I'll give you another example. So um, ADHD is a diagnosis that, you know, has been controversial because it's a category that's radically expanded uh, over the past few decades. And a lot of it, thanks to pharmaceutical industry marketing in the US, we prescribe, you know, 10 times as much medication for ADHD than in many European countries that outlaw the kind of marketing and promotions that we have here. And so what you see with ADHD, which is very interesting, Stimulants have been shown to improve academic performance um, in children, whether or not they meet criteria for ADHD diagnosis. So what you see is that, well, there's a, there's a market segment for ADHD medication stimulants in particular among more affluent, largely white um, children. And on the other hand, children that would meet criteria for ADHD who are poor, largely black and brown, Overwhelmingly get prescribed off label by off label use sedating antipsychotics. Why? Because they come to medical attention because their teachers feel that they need to be behaviorally controlled in the classroom. And there's been a very deliberate marketing strategy underlying that as well. So teachers in public schools are subject to certain, and their parents are subject to a certain kind of marketing around medications. And then more affluent parents are subject to another kind of marketing around stimulants that uh, improve educational outcomes. So, what I've discovered is, as you're ma- mentioning intersectionality and things like race and class, this stuff is absolutely baked in to our pharmaceutical industries and our mental health system.
0: Wow. Yeah, we, we write a good bit about the pharmaceutical industry at Matt in America. And every few times I write about it, I think, well, I'll, I won't find anything out about it today that will shock me or or offend me a lot. And I always do. Like, I had no idea they were marketing specifically, you know, based on race and class to different hospitals. That's, that's wild stuff.
1: But it makes sense. That's, yeah. the, that's the way our country works. Right.
0: Right. I, I and I, I shouldn't be shocked by it anymore. Like I said, we, we do this work at Madden America quite a bit, but I still yeah. somehow always am like, there's always a way to get under the, the low bar that I have set in my mind. <laughs>
1: And I do think also that the fact that "quote unquote" mental illness is so politically marginalized mm-hmm. um, makes it easier, even still, for pharmaceutical industries to take advantage,
0: right? And it's, for,
1: for healthcare systems to be negligent about the implications of this stuff.
0: It really is a lot of a lot of voiceless people there. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you've definitely already touched on, on the answer to this next question, but I still want to ask it explicitly. Um, so, are there certain groups that are more at risk of misdiagnosis and more specifically mistreatment in, in psychiatry than others?
1: So, yes. I've, I think I've, I've given the background of how what I've learned about mental health and pharma industries mm-hmm. and how they segregate people by class and race. Then there's the element of, I mean, if you really want to get deeply into it, I think that mental health care systems, and I put system in quotes because we know it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it's a system, but it's not a system to promote mental health. They're a reflection of the political disempowerment or impairment of the group involved. And so what my uncles experienced is just a reflection of where they stood in society where they stood in the the political economic hierarchy of society. And so I think that mental health care is kind of it's kind of like a an index of where people are, which which groups belong where in the power hierarchy. I'm not going to say that wealthy people necessarily in this country have good mental health care either. I think we're we're in a we're in a system that is crazy making for everyone. And there's an interesting study that came out almost a decade ago now called The Spirit Level. So I don't know if you've run across it, but it's by social epidemiologists Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. They compare industrialized nations by health outcomes against measures of social inequality. And what they find is that the more socially unequal the country, the worse the health outcomes. What that means is, The worst, the distribution of wealth and resources. Like if you're talking about a country and the U.S. always comes out on the top of most unequal of all the industrialized countries, we have the worst distribution of income, for example. And we also always come out the worst in measures of mental health and also physical health. So I just want to flag that as that kind of any, the kind of really severe inequalities that we have in this country actually make people, everyone crazy. Let's just put it that way. Give us all bad outcomes physical and mental health. And we could get into the explanations for why, but it's a very reliable finding. So it's kind of a linear relationship. Those countries, of industrialized countries that have the best distribution of wealth, some examples include Germany, Japan, they have the best health outcomes, mental health and physical health outcomes. Now, here's a really interesting thing that they found in the spirit level. The wealthiest people, if you compare only the wealthiest people across all of these 17 industrialized nations, The wealthiest quartile, you know, the upper quarter of the population in terms of income in the most unequal countries, let's take the U.S., have worse life expectancies and worse mental health outcomes than the wealthiest people in more equal countries. And so the the soundbite from the study was that inequalities are bad even for the rich. It's a really interesting thing to think about. And, you know, we we could debate the reasons for that. The authors had some explanations involving the fact that in a country like the U.S., the inequalities are reflective of the fact that we don't have public health oriented laws that protect everybody. So we don't have, you know, good gun laws. We don't have good air quality laws. We don't have just things that affect everybody regardless of their income. They also talked about the stress of trying to stay on top. If you're a rich person in a country where the consequences of not being on top are so dire, you know, so that's a lot of pressure. So there there are many different possible explanations for it, but I just find it really interesting to think about.
0: Right. And if there are like certain groups, that are kind of more at risk of mistreatment than others.
1: Definitely. You know, it's well-documented that um, poor people, black and brown people get you know, worse treatment in terms of they they don't get treatment that follows um, professional society guidelines. You know, they get a lot more in the way of dangerous, over sedating drugs and multiple drugs that interact with each other. That reflect that the doctor hasn't taken any time to think through the regimen or the you know the side effects. Uh, they get restrained a lot more often. So, you know, I was describing the. The wards at Bellevue that were totally overcrowded and understaffed, and you had frightened nurses and frightened floor attendants that were very quick to put people in restraints, four-point restraints, or to put them in in a seclusion room, whereas in a better-funded ward, like up the street at NYU Hospital, uh, you had staff trying to talk people down if they were having an emotional outburst and avoid, you know, build relationships, use soothing music, calming rituals, uh, instead of putting them in four point restraints. Um, So you definitely do see those kinds of differences. Um, I think if anything, these days, what you're seeing, it's really tricky thing of both too much, quote unquote care in the way of over medicating people and over restraining people and abandonment. Because what I saw at Bellevue these days Insurance companies will only pay for a few days of hospitalization. So what you get is people coming in in serious crises, getting a bunch of strong antipsychotics on board to sedate them, getting into restraints, and then being released a few days later with no plans for housing support, no no plans for social support, no plans for how can they get continuity of care. So you're seeing abandonment in that way too. Um, and, of course, I don't think the answer is necessarily more medications and more restraints. I think the answer is we have to look at what kinds of community supports do we have, right? Not to mention that we need more equal distribution of resources and <laughs> the things that would you know, develop our, our communities economically. Um, so I'm not advocating for more restraints or more polypharmacy I'm just saying that we have really used mental illness, quote unquote, as a way of abandoning a large swath of people who are largely poor people. Uh, now, with rich people, I think they they also don't get the best <laughs> because what we, we we're trying to treat mental health problems among rich people in a pathological society. So. Yeah, I think the answer is that we need a better society, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, easy, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but there are ways forward that, you know, unfortunately, we keep getting distracted from. We keep getting distracted from the fact that, for example, um, with the outsourcing of jobs and things like that, what's happening is that the social fabric of our communities has um, unraveled. You know, lots of people unemployed, and lots of kind of bedrock community organizations no longer really able because people can't don't have the money and they don't have uh, the jobs that organize their daily lives and things like that. Um, just a lot of disorganization socially and people being very isolated. and there are a bunch of sociologists who documented um that many, signs of distress including opioid overdose drug overdose which is my area of research are directly linked to feelings of isolation you know and disintegration of community fabric community organizations sources of source social support so instead of debating how we can get more medications to people I think we need to debate how we can foster community development economic and social how can we support, social connections and supportive
0: communities. Yeah. So what, what are some ways that that you can think of? Like, what can, I mean, really anybody, like you've mentioned some, some of the roles that practitioners play, you know, sometimes like it, it has to do with like wanting to uh, get somebody certain services like social security or something like that. And um, I'm wondering about like, what can, what can a practitioner do in that moment? Like what can an academic do? What can patient families do? In in your view, what can we do to kind of move that forward a little bit?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked, because one thing that I've been busy doing over the past almost decade with colleagues is um, building a movement that we call structural competency. You know, I think many of us have been exposed to the idea of cultural competency, that one way we're going to try to address differences in health outcomes and health care. By race, class, et cetera, we need to pay attention to people's culture, right? And that sounds good, but in practice, what it's meant in, in medicine anyway, and in psychiatry, has been that we kind of blame the victim because we act as though the reason why the outcomes are so bad for poor people, for black and brown people, is their beliefs and behaviors. And what we really need to look at is what I what we are just discussing in the way of, you know, the economic decline. Um, the accompanying um, social isolation and disintegration of community organizations and support. Uh, We need to be looking not at the level of an individual patient's beliefs and behaviors, but we need to look at what's available in the community. Who can we partner with in communities in the way of community organizations, mutual aid organizations, things like that. Who can we partner with to support our patients I'm using the language of patients because I work in a psychiatry department, but I realized that there's a movement to not refer to people as patients either. You know, what can we do to help people in their communities? What about institutions that are really relevant to people's health outcomes, but aren't really part of the healthcare system, like housing agencies, criminal legal systems, schools, uh, park and rec. Can't we collaborate with them for, health-promoting initiatives? What about public policies? Um, So so there are lots of things, actually, that psychiatrists and other clinical practitioners can do to to promote health in these areas. Um, And they do involve a lot of collaboration because in medical school and in clinical training, we don't necessarily learn how to do community organizing. But there's a lot that if we partner with community organizers, there's a lot of good that we can do. And I'm super inspired by the new generation of mental health practitioners, because I'm seeing residents and interns and trainees do things very differently. So I'll give you an example, a group of residents in New Haven at Yale that I've been working with. They have been partnering with, with urban farms. They've been partnering with um, organizations that assist undocumented migrants. They've been partnering with mutual aid organizations, including theater and arts organizations. Uh, that have in them people with lived experience of serious mental health distress. And so um, they're doing a lot. They're also working with policymakers. They hosted a series of conferences called Rebellious Psychiatry, where they invited policymakers and um, started to think about how can mental health practitioners partner with people with lived experience to get better public policies in place. So they managed to get... um, Some laws regarding affordable housing and supportive housing in Connecticut passed. And so I just I look to things like that as inspiration for how we can do our business differently. We need to address the root of the problem. The root of the problem is not the beliefs and behaviors of individual patients. The root of the problem is we have this pathogenic society with seriously um, oppressive. Public policies often, the fact that we don't allow for affordable housing has really torn up the country. Economic policies that have left people with such an insecure employment and and no benefits have left people, you know, really stranded and hurting. But we have one thing that we have that's really great in this country is a history and a legacy of commute grassroots organizing and mutual aid. And again, I take my inspiration from the AIDS epidemic. AIDS activism achieved a whole lot. And I also see uh, Madden America embodies this, the spirit of people with lived experience, you know, getting together um, and collaborating at times where it's strategic with with practitioners, clinical practitioners or policymakers or, you know, a range of housing agency um, directors. There's so much that mutual aid and grassroots organizing can accomplish. And so that's where I see the future. Like we, as if we're going to speaking as a psychiatrist, if we're really going to make a difference in mental health, that's what we have to be doing. We have to be working with people with lived experience, mutual aid organizations, community organizers, as well as policymakers and people who run agencies that in sectors that are really so relevant to health outcomes like housing.
0: So, yeah, a lot of moving parts there, but definitely some stuff we can do, I think.
1: Yeah, and Madden America is no small part of it.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate that. It is. It's uh, There's a lot of work I've done that I'm, you know, as an academic, I'm sure you can relate that I'm not terribly proud of, but I do really enjoy this work. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what patients or service users in particular can do to kind of maybe insulate themselves or protect themselves or you know, just stay a little further away from this stuff? Is there anything they can do to help themselves?
1: Oh, yeah. So I mentioned mutual aid and I'm aware of, you know, a few different organizations that are now national in scope. One of them is Icarus Project, which you've probably written about or your colleagues have in Madden in America. Um, but they're organizations that are founded and run by people with lived experience and, I'll just take as an example, Icarus Project, because I am familiar with it and have been lucky enough to be taught by some of its founders and leaders. They have, for example, a guide to tapering off medications, which is something that psychiatrists are not trained in. (laughs) <laughs> and so literally I I've, I've seen people you know from Icarus Project bring this guide into their psychiatrists and p- teach their psychiatrists how to how to taper them off of certain medications that are problematic for them. And there's just a lot that mutual aid organizations can do to help people understand the problems that they're having with the mental health system in a different way and understand their rights and how to push back. I think that's terribly important. And there's so much um, what we in the in psychology is called self-stigma. You know, I think that one of the huge problems with giving somebody a psychiatric diagnosis is that it's automatically because of all of the stereotypes and all the baggage of images of people with psychiatric diagnoses over the past century. It just it really weighs people down not only does it objectively make it harder for them to get jobs and to get housing and all of that, we know that, but it also, I think, makes it harder for people to feel good about themselves and to have, have faith in themselves and their own compass, their own internal compass. And so I think one thing that's great about mutual aid organizations is that when you're with other people who've been through that, you begin to understand yourself as Not a flawed individual, but rather somebody who's felt the impact of an oppressive system that's larger than them. And I I think that switch in mentality, where you're not seeing yourself as a flawed individual, you're seeing yourself as somebody who's been struggling upstream against some very negative systemic pressures, that makes all the difference in the world because it puts you in the position to fight back, you know, and to fight for your place at the table. So that's why I think mutual aid is so critical in all of this. And I really, you know, I have colleagues that are threatened by that. I, I know psychiatrists who will say mutual aid organizations are anti-psychiatry. You know, they're out to get me and it's, you know, they're run by people who are deluded, people who think they don't have a problem and they they don't realize they need help. I think that's a that kind of defensiveness is a sign of the insecurity that we have in our field. And I think it's an unfortunate cop-out because we know that psychiatry as a field is not having the positive impact that it should. We know there's something wrong with the way we practice. It's just not giving us the results. But rather than beginning to ask what's wrong with the way we practice and consult people who actually have lived experience, we get defensive about it, you know, and we get threatened. Uh, where if if we could just be curious... And if we could just learn from people with lived experience, um, then we'd see that mutual aid is one of the most powerful things that can be given, you know, and that people can seek out for themselves. And we'd be encouraging people to seek out mutual aid organizations. We've encouraged them to question their diagnoses and really think carefully about what kinds of treatments seem to benefit them and not. So that's, I'm, I'm hoping more of my colleagues can do that, that they cannot be threatened and just be much more curious and
0: supportive. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how um, morality affects diagnosis. I know you've, I believe you've written about this a little bit in respect to the opioid epidemic and um, addiction in general.
1: So there's a whole field of scholarship in anthropology that is around morality and uh, morality as a cultural system. So I think what I've already been talking about, though, the ways that psychiatric diagnoses can be weaponized against people and can take away their legitimacy as moral actors. You know, it has something to do with that. And so I think one of our most important jobs, if we're going to advocate for a better approach to mental distress is to get help provide the conditions for people to get their moral agency back. That's really what I, I was talking about with regard to trusting one's own compass. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the first things a mainstream psychiatrist of the kind who might get defensive about mutual aid, one of the first things they might do is say, question the judgment of the person who's coming in in distress. Mm-hmm. You know, there's oh, uh, we use the term insight, right? Yeah. And we met, monitor if somebody's hospitalized day by day, we have to document in the patient chart, how much insight do they have about their mental illness? And when somebody accepts our terms of their mental illness, then they have insight. And that's what we reward, you know, as they're a good patient, we can discharge them. We can do this, we can do that. They they're more trustworthy. Um, And I I think that's, it's a reflection of the power inequalities involved for sure. And the ways that we've misused psychiatric care as a way of enforcing uh, power hierarchies, but it's, you know, it's, I think therapeutically, it's the exact wrong approach. What we want to do is help people to trust themselves, because that's a part of the crisis that they may be having. And often they're trying to express a critical truth. I think that the stereotype that the, that the media and the general public have that if somebody is psychotic, that means that they're just having wildly crazy and unpredictable associations in their head that aren't at all rooted in reality. I think that's totally wrong. If you spend enough time with people who have a psychotic episode, you realize that there there is a coherence to the story they're telling. There's some truth there. And if you spend enough time with them, and if they spend enough time with themselves, they can get to that. And it often has to do with a trauma. You know, it often has to do with a really horrifying experience they've had that they weren't able to resolve in another way, other than going to the kind of symbolic realm of a psychosis. But there's a truth there. And so I think the first thing to do is to acknowledge that truth and the coherence to somebody's story.
0: Yeah, it's actually something I've said to my students quite a few times about that is um, like a lot of times when we look at somebody that we would describe as kind of experiencing psychosis, right? They're, They're having a psychotic break or whatever language we want to use around it. A lot of those delusions seem to be, again, (laughs) um, maybe related to something more personal, but also like a lot of times the delusions that they have, they're kind of correct with the big picture, but wrong about the details. So, Mm -hmm. you know, about like a really common one, there's some some group or some entity or some aliens that kind of want to know what I'm thinking and they're trying to figure me out. I mean, there are these groups that want to know what you're thinking and are trying to figure you out. Right. Because all of
1: our cell phones are monitored. Exactly. Um,
0: So, yeah, I mean, the the overarching thing that they're saying is absolutely correct. It's just the details are a little fuzzy. And I mean, the details are a little fuzzy on things for a lot of us, I guess. I totally agree with you. So can you talk a little bit about what you've called um, context free neuroscience um, and the place of race, specifically in the opioid epidemic?
1: Oh, okay, so that's bringing yet another element yeah. into the same story, right? Which is that neuroscience, the field of neuroscience that is so idolized and coveted by psychiatrists, psychiatrists would really love to see mental health treatment become applied neuroscience. Like they just want to boil everything down to the brain <laughs> because that would give the field of psychiatry a lot more prestige. It'd give it a veneer of scientific control and predictability. Um, A lot of my colleagues think it would get rid of the stigma of psychiatric diagnoses, which is a complete, now that is a delusion. That is a delusion because when my sociology colleagues actually research this, they find that people who believe in the brain disease model, Mm -hmm actually stigmatize people with psychiatric diagnoses more yep. because they think, oh, it's biological. It's um, something that is hereditary, that can't be changed. I wouldn't want my son or daughter ma- marrying anybody with that diagnosis, right? I don't want to move in next to them. So it's a, it's a fallacy. But you know, many of my colleagues think if we could just boil it down to the brain, it'll destigmatize mental illness because it'll hold people blameless. I think that it actually could not only—it doesn't necessarily hold them blameless, but it does take away their moral agency. You know, it just con- it consigns people to a category where you just can't expect them to participate in their own decision making and so forth. So, anyway, we, in psych- psychiatry these days, we're really beholden to this idea that neuroscience is going to produce magic bullet solutions on the molecular level, and that we can identify everything in the brain. It also, this ideology ends up reinforcing the same class, race, hierarchies that we were just discussing. Um, on the one hand, it, it presents itself as neutral, right? Because you're talking about a brain. It doesn't matter where somebody lives, it doesn't matter the color of their skin, what their job is. It's just the brain. It shouldn't matter where they live, what they do, who they are. And you see this this universalism, this kind of molecular universalism uh, expressed in the kinds of images that are put on to psychiatric journals these days. You'll just see like a, an image of a brain scan, <laughs> right? That's kind of the image of contemporary psychiatric research. It's just the brain and it doesn't matter who this person is. Mm-hmm. But what that ends up doing is completely distracting us as psychiatrists and policymakers, consumers, everybody else, from all of what we call the social determinants of health, right? We, we end up not asking why is it that certain groups suffer so much more than others? You know, why do cert- why are certain groups so much more likely to get certain diagnoses? Why are they so much more likely to die prematurely with this diagnosis, right? So it erases neighborhood conditions, It erases policies, public policies. It erases race and class. It gets us not asking, what about housing policy? How is that related to the elevated mortality among people who have psychiatric diagnoses? It erases, what about drug war policies? You know, what has that done to this category of people? So that's what I mean by context-free neuroscience. I think that ideology, that kind of worship of the brain and molecular solutions, it's worsened a lot of our mental health problems because it's detracted any kind of attention or investment in the social determinants.
0: Right. So can you recall any significant pushback or criticism that you've kind of experienced from, from colleagues, from peers, bosses, people in the industry, just anything at all due to your, um, I mean, what I would describe as kind of a critical view of psychiatry. Is it, is it ever tough uh-huh. being a psychiatrist with that critical view?
1: Thank you for that question. You know, somehow, I feel very lucky, because maybe even being an anthropologist has insulated me. On the one hand, what I'll tell you has not happened is I have not gotten a ton of NIH money. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have, you know, National Institute of Mental Health running after me trying to give me grants. Or National Institute on Drug Abuse. (laughs) I've gotten a little bit of money from National Institute on Drug Abuse when I managed to disguise myself as somebody who could produce data supporting the benefits of buprenorphine, a medication for opioid dependence. Right. But but. um, but that I haven't had. I haven't had a lot of NIH funding. And I certainly don't get asked to serve as, you know, like division chief or chair or anything, you know, like of a traditional psychiatric service. Okay. But that's fine. What I've had is the liberty because I tell everyone I'm an anthropologist psychiatrist. I'm insulated in a way people have kind of given me the space to do something that consider to be very different. And then there are these rare pockets where everybody's running to me for help in addressing a crisis. I'll give you an example that me and colleagues like me, uh, that are typically pretty marginalized within psychiatry. So, um, you know, over the past year or year and a half of huge inequalities and COVID deaths by race, for example, and Huge upticks in overdose deaths, particularly among black and brown people, but also among poor white people. There's all of this emphasis right now on racism and health, inequalities in health. So psychiatry departments across the country are scrambling to show that they're they're attending to these issues. And the American Psychiatric Association is scrambling to show that they're attending to these issues. So all of a sudden I'm being invited to serve on this panel on racism and mental health and that task force, you know, so this year has been a really kind of interesting experiment, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and I think groups like black lives matter have had a lot to do with that. And I, you know, I bet that groups that are organized around mutual aid when it comes to emotional, mental distress, um, they would have the same impact when you, when you organize and you, you ratchet things up to a certain level of attention, then you can get institutional response. I think that my fear is, of course, that this is just for show, you know, and that it's temporary and that as soon as the cameras are gone and the media is gone, we're going to go back to the same old, same old. So that's where colleagues and I are trying to figure out how can we keep the pressure on around social determinants of mental health, structural racism and mental health? How can we make sure that this continues and that it builds I don't have the answer to that, but I think it has something to do with organizing and efforts like Madden in America to push back against the status quo. I'm
0: wondering if you can tell us about something in your research that you've learned that most of us probably don't know, uh, but we could benefit from knowing. I have a feeling like a lot of the the stuff that you've looked at in particular, maybe you have discovered a lot of things that the rest of us don't know. But if you had to boil it down to one Anything that comes to mind?
1: Ooh, well, I, I kind of have the feeling that none of what I have just been describing is actually brand new. Like so, <laughs> some of the details might not be known. So the, the way that pharmaceutical industries segment markets and things, we, we know, average person might not know the details of how that's done. But I don't know if I have anything that is so really new for critical thinkers, you know. And I think Mad in America is definitely made up of critical thinkers so i guess you know here's one thing i want to put out there it's not going to be new at all but it is new to my psychiatric colleagues i think that there's therapeutic value to critical thinking i think that actually critical thinking just the habit of reading things against the grain and understanding systemic nature of inequalities that that helps people who are on the receiving end of those inequalities and you know they're Bunch of different people who've systematized this kind of thinking. I'm thinking about Paulo Freire, the Brazilian educator who wrote about critical consciousness. He was writing about the education system and the way that it kind of brainwashes poor people into blaming themselves for their own problems. But the same could be said about people with psychiatric diagnoses, right? You could just transfer this idea of critical consciousness from the school system to the mental health system. I think that we should be thinking very explicitly about critical consciousness of the kind that Madden America is supporting as something that's therapeutically beneficial to people's mental health. Because it helps them to, again, back to moral agency, it helps them to see themselves, not only as recipients of systemic oppression, but as people who can push back against that. If If you understand where you are within a system, then you can start thinking about how can I act within that system in my own interests. So that's not surprising, but it's something that's sometimes surprising to my um, more mainstream psychiatric colleagues.
0: I can imagine. Well, all right. Um, That's all the questions I've got for you today. Thank you so much for talking with us and making time for the interview. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. You've made this so much fun. And again, I I so appreciate your work. My goodness. It's just taken us so far.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.